Hi, I'm Nico. And I'm Rashmi. And we're your hosts of Anything But, a podcast where we chat with notable people about anything but what they're notable for. Today, we're joined by the chairman of Google's parent company, Alphabet, and the 10th president of Stanford University, Dr. John Hennessy. In addition to being a distinguished engineer, Dr. Hennessy is also a pioneer in computer science and joint winner of the Turing Award for his work developing modern-day computer chip architecture. Dr. Hennessy, thank you so much for joining us today. Delighted to be here. Well, Dr. Hennessy, we're going to spend our first few minutes talking about Alphabet and Stanford, and then we'll jump into anything but that. So to kick it off, can you tell us about your beginnings with Alphabet? Maybe what the hardest part was about getting started? Sure. Actually, my roots with the company go way back because Sergey Brin and Larry Page were graduate students at Stanford. And the first demonstration I saw of what would become the Google search engine was actually when they were still at Stanford. Uh, and then I had an evolving relationship with them over the years as they began to build the company. And then uh, they asked me in about 2003 to consider joining the board at a time they were beginning to think about going public and adding additional uh, board members. So I joined board then and I've been on uh, since 2004 uh, and it's been an amazing, amazing time. That's fantastic. It's, you know, one of those things that it's very few people necessarily realize what the, the founding origin of Google was. And I know, you mm -hmm. know, from learning in my computer science classes here at Stanford, that's a big part of what, you know, one of our claims to fame, so to speak. So it's really <laughs> cool to hear how long you've been involved with Google from that very beginning. Um, Rashmi, I want to toss it over to you too. I know we had a question come up about AI. Yeah. Nico and I were just kind of chatting because AI is obviously becoming very critical to just how we think about society, how people are moving into the workforce. And it's also a pretty hot topic amongst college students too, um, which is quite interesting to me, actually. And we know you've been speaking about it recently, but we were just wondering from your background and experience, what do you see as the future of computer science in a world that's now becoming very heavily reliant on artificial intelligence? Well, you know, I have the, having been in the field of computer science for essentially 50 years now, um, I've seen a lot of technologies. I've worked on technologies moving very fast. I saw the birth of the internet. I've seen these others. No technology has ever moved as fast as AI is moving. In, in a little more than a decade, um, modern new AI, which really means machine learning based AI, because of course, was AI research going on for many years before that. In fact, it was my former colleague at Stanford, John McCarthy, that created the term artificial intelligence and that was back in the 60s. But for many years, the technology move didn't make these big advances. And then we made these breakthroughs around deep learning as a core technology, and that transformed everything. And in a relative, I mean, you see chat GPT in a relatively short period of time, natural language, uh, image recognition, a medical diagnosis, um, protein folding, a problem that's a core scientific problem uh, has been advanced by two decades by the use of alcohol. So we all of a sudden went through this transition. And in retrospect, you know, the observation I'd make is the way that the reason the transition occurred is we started to build computers that learn as opposed to computers that we were trying to build in the intelligence, so to speak. And by learning, you get the whole world to learn about. 
and the fact that the the World Wide Web created tons of accessible data means you could use all that data for training. And that's been remarkable in terms of making these new generation AI programs uh, very intelligent, far more than I think we anticipated even just 10 or 15 years ago. That is incredible. And I know chat GPT has been a, a source of conversation in a lot of my classes lately too. Yeah. <laughs> just, it, it, it says a lot of things and it says them with authority. Sometimes they're right. Sometimes they're wrong. <laughs> Definitely. That's part of the learning process, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, you train on the entire web, you train on the junk that's on the web just as much as you train on the good things on the web. That's Definitely. true. Yeah. yeah. Um, I know we've talked about Stanford a little bit already throughout the, the threads here because it is so intertwined with computer science. But broadening out from CS a little bit, can you just talk to us about in your time at Stanford, whether it was as a professor or as president or in your time still here now, a favorite memory or story from your time on the farm? Oh, I have so many, so many getting to lead the Stanford band, which to the extent that the Stanford band has any leader. Uh, <laughs> One of the more interesting points, I, um, you know, when I became president, I started going to visit all the freshman dorms every year. And I would get, just sit down with students to get to know them, to hear something about their questions. And um, of course, they'd ask what kind of music you like. They'd ask, what's your favorite spot on campus? What's the course I should take? But the best question I ever got was boxers or briefs? So, okay. Uh, now, when a student asks you that question, walk us through that. How, what do you do as the president of the university when a student you, asks you that question? Of course, answer it. <laughs> no, that's, that's funny. Now, I didn't realize that you had led the Stanford band at some point. No, oh, um, yeah. And a couple, a couple, uh, on a couple of events, you know, they asked me to take over as the, as the band leader, uh, at least briefly. Okay. Do you play any instruments yourself? No, I don't. So I could only, you know, do this. Okay. <laughs> Using our skill sets. Yes. We have to exactly. find where we have them. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, that actually is a perfect transition into anything but Stanford and, Al and Alphabet because we're already starting to skew that direction. Um, Kathy told us that you love gardening and we'd oh. love to hear a bit about that if you have any you know, any tricks of the trade, favorite things, where your love for gardening started? Yeah. So I, um, I, I, uh, I've always loved to uh, grow my own vegetables, particularly tomatoes, because homegrown tomatoes are just so much better than anything else. They're the best. They are. You can't, they you are. can't do better. Yes. So uh, we grow those a lot. And because my wife is Italian and we really love Italian food, we can use as many tomatoes as we can possibly get, <laughs> along with a lot of basil as well. Um, and then we've tried out different things. Uh, you know, California has the advantage that some things, I mean, we have Swiss chard. It overwinters. It'll grow right through the winter. It grows slowly in the winter, but it'll grow the next minute spring takes off. So we've, we've uh, become a big fan of that. Same for arugula. Arugula will grow through. We never get a hard enough frost to kill it. Um, so we can grow a bunch of things like that. Strawberries, straw, homegrown yes. strawberries. Oh, so good. You know, the problem, is, the problem is the way they pick strawberries in the field, they have to pick them green, a little green, or they'd be mushy. But you pick them up and they're just perfect at, ho at home. So 
we're lucky to be able to grow some really nice things and we have great weather in California. So you get a lot of, a lot of crops. I mean, our tomatoes, we'll have, we'll start getting them in, you know, I'll put them in probably the end of April or so. We'll probably have Mm -hmm. some by mid June and we'll be, the last harvest will probably come in November, early November around. So we have a long growing season. Have you ever grown something you weren't particularly fond of or have they all just been super good? Yeah, so we have a we have a small um pomegranate bush. You know, pomegranates it's a lot of work to eat pomegranates. Okay. So I give them to my it, kids. It is. I give them to my kids. Our granddaughters love them. So I did you have anything to do with the planting of pomegranate plants here? I'm in my dorm at Flomo right now. Uh, I know there are some pomegranate bushes out in our courtyard. Yeah, I did you have any hand to play in that? They're Mediterranean, so they grow well in our climate, and that that makes them work well. You're right, though. They are quite a bit of work to eat. They are a lot of work. You know, the secret of them is when you break it apart, uh, throw the pieces you break apart in water. Yes, and the the right. rind, all the rind stuff floats, and the seeds sink, and then you get just the seed, which is all you want anyway. It's, so where did you get all of this gardening knowledge? Is it something you've done from the time you were younger? Was it in no, the family I, or did I you just, just find I the passion? All over. I didn't do, I actually took a break from it when I was president because the garden there is controlled by the people who run the president's house. So, but we had, a, right. we had one in the former house we lived in and then uh, we have one here in this house. So just a fun thing to do. That's awesome. That's good. Having hobbies like that is super nice. You mentioned your wife when you were talking about your experiences with gardening, and we've heard that you ended up marrying your high school sweetheart, which is just so sweet. And we were wondering if you had any advice to younger generations of people that are navigating relationships. You know, I think I think the key is to find the right match for you. For us, we married very early. So the good news is we kind of grew and learned together. I think you either you either um, you either do that at the very beginning and you kind of bond and then you and we went through hard times, too. We, you know, we were when I was a graduate student, we were poor. We didn't have much money at all. Our our just to put it in context, our weekly grocery budget was twenty dollars. That was twenty dollars was a little more money back then. But still, we uh, and I would we had one car that my wife used to get to work and I commuted by bicycle for six miles. So that was, and I try to, the, the bus cost, there was a bus, but it cost a buck each way. So to save money, I would try to ride my bicycle as long as possible. I could usually get to around Thanksgiving and then back East in New York, it's too cold. (laughs) It's so, um, yeah, so we, but that, that worked well for us. I think, you know, I think the other route, I mean, our kids both married later and they both, did a bunch of things before they found the person they wanted to spend their life with. So I think mm-hmm. either route works, but finding out, making sure you're compatible and uh, you can work well and grow together over time. Mm-hmm. Is still important. As we're talking about family here, you know, I read that you are one of six kids. Is that right? I am. And my wife's one of nine. Wow. wow. Okay. Oh, wow. Okay. So that both of you have that collective experience of growing up with a lot of siblings. Is there anything um, that you or she have learned from growing up with with so many people in your family? 
you know, I think when you grow up in a larger family, you you learn what's really critical. And I think both my white parents and my parents always made sure we had enough food to eat. Um, we had enough that they were giving us enough attention with respect to what we needed at school and things. And I think that was a really important, important part of our, of our lives. So, um, and you learn to share and you learn to get along with people. And, you know, we have such smaller families, families are so much smaller now than they, mm -hmm. than they used to be. Um, so you have to build a different kind of extended network. Definitely. I mean, I grew up with two sisters, so not quite, not quite five siblings. Right. Um, but I know that, you know, even in that environment, there's so much to learn from both of my sisters are older. So I had so much to look up to them and learn from them. Where do you fall in the sibling order? First. Okay. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so you are the oldest of, of your siblings, that right? I am. So then is there anything that you can think of, any examples you left that you're proud of or less proud of for your younger siblings to follow? Oh, I was probably, I was probably a difficult, uh, a difficult uh, older sibling to have. I mean, I think probably it was tough. I can imagine my brothers going to school and I can imagine teachers saying, geez, you, you, how come you don't act like your brother? I mean, I, you can imagine these kinds of lines like right. this. That, um, but we, we had, um, there were three boys and, and then my sister, um, and we were all, we were two years apart. So we spent the summer, my, my grandparents decided that my parents needed a break during the summer. So they, uh, paid for uh, me and my two brothers to go to summer camp all summer, um, which was marvelous. Me and me, I, we, we <laughs> loved it. We loved it. It was a great experience. And, um, you know, they would, they would, everybody knew us because we, at that time, my hair is the, was the same color then it is, is now, except we're a little more blonde than white, but the same idea. And we all had three, three of us completely blonde hair at that point. So uh, they, everybody knew who we were from that. That's such a sweet experience. I think summer camp is, there's so many memories that happen there. It becomes a core part of everyone's childhood. I still have so many memories from when I used to go to the same camp for many, many years. Yeah. It's, you were saying that you were the oldest child. Is there anything in particular that you learned when you were growing up being on the older end of many siblings that you applied to raising your own kids and any types of lessons that you learned from that kind of unique position? You know, I think we, you, 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 uh, yeah. In, in a family of six, there has to be a certain regimentation to get things to work, right? People have to have jobs. They've got, it's got to be a certain amount of discipline or it's pure chaos <laughs> when you only have two so that, that we kind of change things a bit. But I think the thing I, the thing I realize now, which I didn't realize earlier, is the time that you really know whether or not you've done a good job as a parent is when you see your children as parents. Because if, they, if they're patient and thoughtful and caring parents, then you think, boy, I got the right, the right message somehow, <laughs> got clean. even though there were some tense periods along the way. Yeah. That's interesting so to think about as we're like younger too. So like, I wonder what our parents will think when we get older. <laughs> we'll see where they stand. Yeah, we'll see how it all shakes out. But Okay, so you're a grandpa. Uh, is there anything that you can 
talk to us about being being a grandpa. Favorite parts, fun stories, challenges, anything sure, I, about I, that experience. I have three granddaughters, so I'm a big believer in empowering women. <laughs> And uh, they're they're terrific and they're inspirational and they um, boy they really can wear you out though quickly and I don't know whether it's because I'm older I've forgotten the role of being a parent uh, <laughs> but it's it's really enjoyable and they love to they love to do things together and so uh, we get a chance to see them uh, frequently since they're both pretty close one just to the north of us and one to the south of us so. So that's, that's fun. One of the, that's it's sweet. one of the great things in life. People, people say um, being a grandparent is even better than you think it's going to be. And that's our experience. And that's the, so the, awesome. The key, the key to that is the parent's job is discipline. The grandparent's job is spoiling them. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I definitely felt that from my grandparents. Um, <laughs> I wonder then. You know, I remember being younger, my grandparents would almost revert back to that childhood sense of play and wonder with me. Do you find yourself doing the same? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So our youngest one, who's about one and a half now, loves to do Ring Around the Rosie. <laughs> so oh. we, do these, we do these silly games. And uh, and my, my wife, who loves to dance, uh dances with them all the time and they all love to dance so we we play all kinds of fun silly games oh sometimes it's nice to just kind of be a child again sometimes and get to experience those things with them and you've got to stay young at heart no matter how old you are absolutely exactly um you know now that we're talking about childhood actually i i read something else about you sir (laughs) <laughs> you really enjoyed blowing things up with chemistry sets. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I did. Re- you know, you'd mentioned that they included a lot of chemicals they don't put in chemistry sets anymore. Are you doing anything like that with your grandkids yet? Oh, <laughs> no, because you realize some of the things you did were really stupid, dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> So you try to avoid that and get and get more safe things. And now we have modern versions of toys. So, you know, uh, some kind of uh, vehicle replaces what we did with chemistry sets or something. So you can do some of these things in a way that's, uh, you know, you can do it with a drone, for example, and they can fly a drone around. And, you know, the worst that happens is they crash the drone rather than blow themselves up, which is great. <laughs> yeah. So what is what's the hot uh, toy or game right now with your grandkids? Well, you know, we a lot of things they play with are just conventional things. I mean, they build with Legos or other things. They've got they they have this uh, thing they got for Christmas they like, which is like a car park thing where cars go down ramps. But then it also has a T Rex head that comes along and tries to bite the cars as it goes down. Oh, but hey, oh, wow, that's innovative. <laughs> so they think it's just so funny when this head comes down and tries to chop the cars. <laughs> huh. Yeah, no, I, I played with, like, car ramps and garages and things, but yeah. none of them had it's, a dinosaur head like on a them. garage, except, it, except it's got a dinosaur. <laughs> Sometimes that's all it takes, just, like, some random little additional yeah. thing, and you have, like, hours and hours of fun. 
Yeah. And they love, they're crazy about dinosaurs. They're crazy about them. So uh, they, they love them and they love, uh, and some odd ones, not just the more typical T-Rexes and Brontosaurus and things. So. Did you have a particular favorite toy when you were growing up that you just could not get enough of? Yeah, probably building things like erector sets and we had those certainly then and those were probably things today are much more uh, electrified, right? So you have things that, but in those days you had a few early on things that you could motorize, right? But today everything's mm-hmm. motorized. It's kind of a big change. Did you ever say your career was going to like go somewhere different, like with your interest in things when you were younger? You know, I was always interested in building things, kind of mm-hmm. applied science, engineering kinds of things. Um, you know, I started working on computers in high school when you had to, computers were things you dialed up over teletype machines and they were far away. And we had punch paper tape was the way you stored your program. <laughs> So that got me started in computing. And then, you know, when I headed to college, I really uh, just focused on that. Although just to set in context, when I was an undergraduate, there were no computer science majors anywhere in the U.S. as undergrads. There were were graduate programs had started a little earlier, but there were no uh, undergraduate programs. So I majored in electrical engineering, uh, but focused on on computing as kind of my area. Interesting. in today's Stanford, it's hard to imagine any world in which there was no was computer, computer science, science. major. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, when I came to Stanford, there were about 15 people in computer science, most of whom, by the way, didn't have a PhD in computer science because they had, they had done their work before there were PhDs in computer science. Wow. That's the pioneering work, right? That's, yeah, that's, that's pioneering work. It was very early. The field was very early. I mean, it was a remarkable time because it was just the early days of the field were just still there. And and you got to meet people who um, opened up the modern field of computer science. Okay. No, definitely. And it seems like, you know, you've been involved in computer science and gotten to see so much of it evolve, um, you know. Almost from, I guess, when it was just an emerging field to now, when, like you said, there's this rapid evolution of technology um, and that, you know, you've had the opportunity to both be a leader and watch other people lead the industry. I recall you saying at some point uh, that sometimes in the face of challenges, like while leading Stanford, like while at MIPS, there, sometimes you just have to get up and lead. And I'm curious to know what leadership means to you. What does it mean to just get up and lead? So I think, I think there are two different um, roles that you do this. One is sometimes when the community needs somebody to get out there, pull them together, say something. That's sort of the situation we found ourselves in after 9-11 when I was president. Somebody needed to get up and say, we're going to survive this. We're going to help uh, repair the damage and we're going to move forward and continue to thrive despite this horrible thing that's hurt. Other times y- you need to get up and deliver the tough message mm-hmm. and say, you know, we, 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 I mean, at MIPS, we had to, we had to lay off about a third of the company early on because we had expanded uh, the workforce too quickly and the, and the 
revenue wasn't coming along at the same rate. Um, and the CEO, I was the, I was kind of chief scientist. I wasn't the CEO. And, but he said to me, look, you're the founder of the company. You're the one who has to get up and tell everybody we've got to do this tough thing, but this is still a great company. It's going to thrive. And you know, that falls on your shoulders. So you got to get up and you have to get up and do it and be inspirational. Such an interesting thing to say, just you have to be inspirational because especially mm -hmm. in those times, right? When it seems like there is such, uh, it's so hard to find hard. inspiration, mm -hmm. right? Or being that it's person. Hard. And you got to do it in a way that I, you know, what I, I always say is you've got to find a way to lead with humanity, with empathy, because it's a tough thing. And if you look, if you look like you're Simon Legree and you're happy to, terminate these people or do a layoff or, you know, something else, it just will, it just will undermine your ability to uh, inspire the team and get them to move forward. Definitely. I, you know, I couldn't imagine having to be in that position and, and make those decisions to inspire in the face of that adversity or that, you know, big looming gray cloud. But just like you're saying, sometimes you just have to find the courage in you to do you it. You have to find the courage and, mm -hmm. and you learn. You learn how to do it and you learn how to get better at it. Um, it never becomes trivial, but you learn how to do it and do it, do it as well as it can be done. Especially I, I, when you were saying you also have to be the one, sometimes you are the face of that adversity when you have to deliver the bad news. I just, what is kind of your thought process when you are kind of walking into something knowing I am becoming the face of like adversity for someone else. Yeah. Well, what'll happen, what happens to me, and especially when I was doing it for the first time is that meant I wasn't going to sleep the night before because the night before I'd be rehearsing what I was going to say over and over and over right. and just trying to get the words exactly right, the tone exactly right. Um, so you go in and you, you try to bond with the people and, and deal with the difficult message. You know, I, what I used to tell people is in any leadership position, um, you're going to make decisions, which people are not going to like, but if they feel they've been heard and you give them an adequate rationale, you can get them to that decision point without making a permanent enemy. And that's so crucial because if in a leadership position, if you build up too many enemies, it doesn't matter anymore. You cannot, you cannot get the, the team, cannot get the institution, cannot get the people to move forward. Mm -hmm. It seems like through both having at times to be that face of adversity, but also being able to be the person of inspiration, you have had the chance to, I guess, be at some points, uh, probably a turning point in some people's lives. You've you know, sent them or been a part of, you know, influencing their life in some way or another, especially also through the technologies that you've helped pioneer. And I'm curious to know, uh, turning it to you a little bit, I know you like biographies and histories. Mm. If there are any stories that you've heard, learned, experienced, that have been some of those moments that have changed your life? Well, 
I'm a I'm a very big Abraham Lincoln fan. <laughs> I've read um, it, 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 probably six, seven, eight uh, biographies. Um, and what I find particularly inspirational was he was in an extremely difficult situation. Um, probably by far the probably the most difficult situation any any uh, political leader has ever been in. Certainly comparable to any. Um, he managed to build a team despite the fact that at the beginning, and this is why uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin uses the title team of rivals, because everybody on that initial team thought they were more qualified than he was <laughs> and that they should have been president, not him. But he had an amazing skill to pull, pull people together. And when the opportunity came that he could draft and issue the Emancipation Proclamation. He did it. And despite the fact that his cabinet was completely opposed to him doing it, he said, this right. is the moment. We finally reached the moment where I feel that I have the constitutional right and I have the, and I'm empowered to do this. Um, so he grabbed that opportunity and changed people's lives. That's, That's I, my dad is also very interested in Abraham Lincoln. So yeah. I've heard many things, but I always like to hear people's takeaways from yeah. all the different things we learn about in history and kind of just in the line of inspiration and talking about how to lead and just kind of stepping up in the moment. We were wondering, it's a bit of a weird question, but we were wondering what is the best advice that you think you've given someone else in a moment where they needed to be empowered or when you were in that kind of leadership position? Is there anything that comes to mind? Well, you know, what, what came to mind is a very simple piece of advice that I gave to somebody that um, led to a really transformative moment. And that was when we had asked Bill, uh, Steve Jobs to do the commencement speech at Stanford. And he had never done a commencement speech. He dropped out of college, in fact. So he was really nervous about what to say and wasn't sure. And I said, Steve, Tell your own story. Talk about the triumphs and the challenges you've had along the way in building Apple. And he did. And he, when, when he stepped down from the stage, he said to me, was that okay? I said, Steve, that was the best commencement address ever, ever. He, but he wasn't sure about it. He wasn't sure about it. But, you know, the, his ability to talk about failure and setbacks and vision and fire in the belly and uh was really was really marvelous so i got him on the right path don't talk platitudes don't give a talk about platitudes talk about your journey i mean so yeah then, that's definitely great advice definitely and looking a little bit to turning that advice over to you right now we're wondering if with your story um outside of what maybe people know about you is there anything else that you want to share, any questions you wish that, that you've always wanted to be asked? Anything that, about you that you want yeah, that's to share? A very good, that's a really good question. You know, for me, I, um, I could have stayed in my role as a faculty member forever and really loved it. I mean, I, I love both the research and teaching side of my experience. I love working with, with young people. And, you know, what inspired me to kind of move into academic leadership was really an observation that um, Condoleezza Rice, who was then the provost, 
um, made before she headed back to Washington again. And she, she was the one who reminded me that education is transformative. It changes people's lives in really fundamental and important ways. And she used her own family's history as an example of that. Um, her grandfather was a black sharecropper who managed to get to college, right? And it changed their lives forever. Um, and she, she, told, she reminded me that the work we do in the university and the work that the university leaders do is what enables this incredible transformation. Um, and that really, that really inspired me. Um, and I thought a lot about the role of what I, what I think of as servant leadership. You're, you're leading, but you're leading by serving a community, a group of people. And that's where you get the joy and, and rewards. We learn about servant leadership in scouting. So I was, I've been yeah. involved in scouting for a very long time. Uh, I'm an Eagle, Scout. an Eagle Scout. So <laughs> yeah, well, and that's something that they teach us all about. So it's really, really great to hear you talk about that and, you know, learning it through lived experience and applying it that way. I'm curious to know if there's anything else about, you know, leading by serving that you think is important for us to understand, especially today when there are so many different ideas for what leadership means. Yeah. I, I think what, in some ways, you really have to figure out if you have the gene for being a servant leader. And the way I think about this is, you know, when I was a faculty member, I'd write research papers, I'd teach a great class. There was direct feedback to me, right? The research paper maybe gets the best paper award at a conference. I teach a great class, the student full of applaud, it's terrific. When you're leading an institution and you're in that servant leader role, most of the successes are going to be by the people in the institution you're leading. Those are going to, it's the student who wins a major scholarship. Um, it's the faculty member who wins a Nobel Prize. What you have to find is personal enjoyment in that moment. You've got to say, look, that person did the work. But I felt I helped enable the environment in which they could work. And that is a great feeling if you can find joy in the accomplishments of your colleagues um, and at the university, joy in the accomplishments of students and faculty um, is really what makes the work fun. And you have to love it. You have to be in. Mm -hmm. I, I've loved every job I've had. I've loved it and I've attacked it with enthusiasm and energy. And that's the only way to do it. You cannot, you cannot do a world-class job if you're not enthusiastic about the work you're doing. Well, sir, your enthusiasm mm -hmm. is definitely infectious. Even if we're yes. only meeting okay. virtually, we, I can feel it. I really <laughs> can. Um, well, this has been absolutely lovely. I've, I've learned a lot. Uh, I know. I have just thought about things like that I've never really thought about before, especially from your background and the things that you're involved in, I really just enjoy getting to talk with you about all sorts of things and learn a lot from them. Well, I've enjoyed it as well. Before we round in my out life here, in a university, obviously I love being <laughs> Before we round things out here, is there, do you have any closing words, thoughts, anything else that you want to make sure we get across? 
Oh, dream big, dream big. The world, there are many big challenges ahead of us and it's going to be up to your generation. You're going to have to solve them. Some are messes we made, some are things we didn't adequately realize as we went along, but, uh, but I think it's going to take determined leadership by young people to address the many challenges we have in front of us. That was Anything But Alphabet and Stanford with Dr. John Hennessy. Head over to anythingbutpod.com to learn how you can join us for an after show. Anything But was created by Rushmere Ranger and Nicholas Lepins, produced by Iman Rahman, with original music by Caleb Liu. 